Welcome to the Create Equity Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Taylor, and this is the first episode in our two-part series on approaching cultural equity. I'm joined by Fari Nzinga, a member of the Create Equity team and an adjunct professor in museum studies at Southern University of New Orleans. Hi, Fari. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for taking time to talk. So you were part of the team that put together the article called Making Sense of Cultural Equity uh, on the Create Equity website. That's correct, yes? Yes. So I'm curious what drew you and your team to uh, focus on this issue? What were the, the, the gaps in the writing you were trying to fill? Well, we wanted to try to understand what people were talking about first off. Um, Create Equity does a lot of work to try to create actionable information on the part of decision makers. And so what we wanted to try to do was we wanted to create something that would be actionable. And so we, we went ahead and we started to think about the issue of equity um, within arts organizations, not just in terms of representation, but all of the different things that comprise equity. And so we kind of overly optimistically began by thinking about, well, what information can decision makers use when it comes to learning from the progress that we've seen in the field? And so we started to conduct some research around the progress that had been seen on these different fronts. And when we started to talk with some of our um, trusted colleagues and esteemed advisors, we began to understand that there wasn't quite as much progress as we had hoped to be able to report back on. And so when we tried to figure out, okay, well, what is relevant and what is actionable in everything that all of these conversations that are taking place right now, we realized that there weren't the same um, definitions of terms. There weren't the same ideas about what a success might look like in terms of cultural equity. And so the gap that we tried to fill was trying to figure out what is it that people mean when they're talking about these things and what are the goals that they're trying to advance towards. So it sounds like there's general understanding about what cultural equity means as sort of a challenge or a problem for the infrastructure, but not so much about what the solution looks like or even what success looks like. Is that correct? That's correct. Let's maybe start by defining the problem, which I think we probably all could understand. So what is the issue of cultural equity? How would you describe sort of the nature of the problem? Well, I'll use an example from the museum sector since that's what I'm uh, most familiar with at this point. So I believe it was in 2015, the Mellon um, actually teamed up with the Association of Art Museum Directors and um, the the American Alliance of Museums to try to survey American museums to figure out who's working in them and what are the demographics of the staffs and the boards Um, I'm not sure if it included volunteers, but it may have. And so what it, it went out to several hundred museums throughout the country and asked people to honestly survey who's working in your museum at what levels, um, and what are their job titles and what are the functions that they're carrying out. And what we found based in that report was pretty much what anecdotally people already had known, which is that museum staffs are largely comprised of able-bodied heterosexual white women um, who are college educated and come from a middle-class family background. 
In terms of cultural equity, the definitions that we're working with um, are really looking at different models of it. But at the baseline, what we're talking about is an issue of justice. What is it um, that is keeping people from being able to be full participants as either producers or consumers? And so if you have whole swaths of the art world, um, arts administrators, arts organizations, artists themselves, who are of one demographic, one slice of the demographic pie, then you start to see that there are issues of representation, there are issues, um, labor practices, there are lots of issues that spiral from that. And so the baseline that we're trying to understand is what are those barriers that are keeping people from being able to fully participate at the level that they would want? Okay, got it. So full participation and equitable participation across many different backgrounds and and contexts. Um, And it feels like a real contribution of this article and your team was starting to tease out the various either solutions or frames or archetypes or lenses uh, that people can observe this question and its solutions through. Can you talk a little bit how you came to these categories? Sure, sure. Well, um, I'll talk a little bit about the categories themselves, if that's okay. Um, Yeah, of course. We came to the categories because as we were somewhat overly optimistically doing our work around what are some of the um, progress, markers of progress that we've seen in the field, we started to um, recognize that there were these undercurrents of thought or schools of thought um, that kept popping up over and over again. So, for example, the first archetype that we talk about is what we call diversity, which is a vision for cultural equity that calls for mainstream institutions. That's like symphonies, art museums, um, arts presenters, um, theaters, that kinds of thing, um, to become more reflective of the communities they serve. Because while we know about what's going on in museums, we also know that the same thing can be said for your mainstream um, arts and culture institutions. So the first vision is um, pretty much the kind of overarching, what is it that we mean when we talk about diversity in all of these different sectors? And so what we found was that the agreement was, you know, for people who want to serve a diverse audience, then diversity is the frame that says they will also need to have some of that um, audience demographic reflected in the staff itself. Um, and then we have found another vision called that we're naming the prosperity vision, which kind of takes diversity's belief in the power of organizational scale and applies it to institutions um, which are started, founded and led by artists of color. And so um, these institutions would follow the standard model of nonprofit growth, trying to cultivate a very wide and diverse audience, um, trying to cultivate a fundraising board. Um, and diversifying their streams of income, professionalizing their staff, et cetera, et cetera. So basically the, pre- the prosperity vision is trying to create more of uh, the types of institutions we see with mainstream arts and culture institutions, but that are founded, led, and dedicated to presenting the art of people of color. Um, and then we have our third which is redistribution, um, that vision argues that people of color 
rural communities, the LGBTQ communities, and others that are socially and economically marginalized by our society have less access to wealth and to support. So an equitable or just or fair redistribution of the funds has to go towards organizations that are serving those communities. Um, so it might mean sacrificing some of the funding that your large mainstream institutions receive in order to right that wrong. And then the last uh, vision that we have identified and what we're calling the self-determination theory is it's a cultural equity model that calls for full participation in an expression of cultural life for communities of color, for LGBTQ communities, for communities that have their own cultural norms. Um, and so trying to create more resources available to support those types of cultural and artistic production that doesn't necessarily come out of the nonprofit arts, um, but that maybe um, has a more organic uh role in their communities. And so allowing communities to have a say over how the money gets spent, how the resources are distributed, and what types of art um, is made. So that's kind of those four visions in a nutshell. So we had diversity, prosperity, redistribution, and self-determination. It sounds like each one is, is what you're calling a vision, sort of a way of looking at the infrastructure from an equity standpoint, but also suggests solutions or approaches yes. um, that might be favored by somebody in, in one camp or another. Does that sound right? That sounds correct. And I would also say each vision kind of successively builds off of the one that came before it. And so diversity might be the closest to what we have now as the status quo. And then each vision that follows diversity gets us farther and farther away from the status quo and gets us to really question some of the institutionalized um, and systematic ways in which cultural equity has been, I wouldn't say denied, but I would say um, has not been achieved thus far. Got it. And how I guess the other question I would have is, do you see these categories or these visions uh, overlapping each other or mutually exclusive from each other? Or how do you sort of think of these or how did you think of these as a team? Well, I think a lot of these are very overlapping. It's um, just because someone, you know, calls for the diversity of mainstream institutions in the diversity vision doesn't preclude that they see it necessary to redistribute funds to support economically um, or socially oppressed groups. Um, so I, I don't see it as an either or. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of the people who are out there advocating for these visions are using one at one time and then another at another time. So people might be um, talking about diversity, but also advocating for prosperity or talking about redistribution, but also um, advocating for self-determination in some um, respects. So there definitely are moments of overlap, not just in terms of the visions, but in terms of the proponents of the visions themselves. 
Now, I know I think it's really valuable to try to categorize and at least describe clusters of activity. I also know the trap can be um, you can start playing favorites um, in your process, and one will attract either the researcher, the policymaker, or the donor, and then they'll start loading all the bad things on the other ones and focusing on theirs. How did you as a team sort of make sure you were being fair um, and clear-eyed in approaching each of these categories in your analysis? Well, we had a research team that the job was just to kind of collect as much information as possible. And then based on who was in that team, what we did was we just um, assigned each person a task, which was after we recognized that there were these four different strands, we tried to write arguments in favor of each of the four strands articulated. And so let's, I, I'm not sure which one I did because it was so long ago, but let's say that I did self-determination, right? So I would write all of the fact-based um, assumptions or, that underlie self-determination as a vision. And then I would try to write fact-based arguments that supported those assumptions or that supported um, this vision as a whole. And so each person took one and did the same exercise. And then based on these arguments and these assumptions, we extracted them from the context in which they had been written. We reorganized them, shuffled them around, and then we gave them to the rest of our team members. So there were about 10 create equity team members in total that participated in this exercise. And so um, to establish, you know, where we were as a team and to try to weed out any of this favoritism, we did a survey and we asked people to rate each assumption on a scale of, I'm very confident this is not true, to a scale of, I'm very confident that this is true, to try to figure out, um, you know, just where most people were thinking and and that gave us a sense of you know what kinds of things we needed to be able to address in order to be able to address the audiences that we're speaking to so it strikes me the one that's particularly challenging is the diversity one and and in the history you provide in the article and also in the conclusions you come to uh, the, the challenge is the diversity is really tied to mainstream institutions, which themselves were constructed uh, with power and wealth and all the same toolkits and biases of so many other social institutions. Um, curious how you stumbled into um, sort of what were the arguments around diversity as uh, informing mainstream institutions as the primary tool to increase equity? Well, one of the main arguments that came out of that was, or an assumption that I think people agreed upon enough that we're calling it an argument, um, was that we have these um, surveys that show us who works in these institutions. And then we have visitor surveys of who attends these institutions. And then we see that there's a disconnect between um institutions and the audiences that they're hoping to be able to reach. And so diversity, the diversity model simply says one of the underlying assumptions of it is that you're going to be able to reach audiences of color, LGBTQ audiences, audiences of differently abled persons, if you have people who are coming from those same demographic, let's say, communities or categories on your staff, creating programming, creating um, 
you know, websites or communications or what have you that reach those communities, right? So it's basically, it seems like common sense, um, but we really did have to go through our logic models in order to end up there and to show, hopefully, to decision makers that this is an investment that will multiply in terms of trying to reach the audiences that are currently underserved by mainstream institutions. Got it. And, I, and the other challenge, which I think you identify, is that the large majority of the contributed income and probably earned income, too, uh, goes to these mainstream institutions. So if you, if you can't address the problem there, certainly elsewhere as well, but if you can't engage the problem where most of the activity and money is already flowing, um, you have a hard time turning the ship around. Exactly. Exactly. Because you can fund all kinds of other projects, but if you haven't changed the model or asked mainstream institutions to do anything differently, um, then they're going to continue to do what they do, right? They've already written their budgets and they've, they've already been presenting their art in the way that they've been doing it. So what is the incentive for change? And you had talked at the beginning, and I know the orientation of Create Equity overall is sort of actionable research, so things that help you behave differently after you've read it or understood it. Um, I'm curious how you and your team were thinking about next steps. So what do you do now that we have categories or now that you have a more nuanced understanding of equity throughout the history of arts and culture? Well, that's a really great question, and I am really excited about putting this piece of work out there into the world because I do think that it is very actionable. And I think one of the first things that can be done at any organization, large or small, is to have conversations uh, amongst the staff, amongst the board, amongst the volunteers that looks at these different visions and tries to understand them, but that also surveys, you know, where is it that people see themselves on this spectrum? Um, what are the goals institution specific? Are they to become more diverse? Are they to, are they to become more prosperous? Are, you know, they trying to advance, uh, self-determination for underserved communities? So I think that having these conversations and really identifying within your organization, what is the vision that you're operating off of is, a really important first step because if you don't know you know the the kind of overarching goal that you want to get to then it's really difficult to put different types of measures in place to make sure that you get there and i know notoriously the united states has a very decentralized um, funding and resource and support structure and that's good and bad in many ways if you as you guys have dug into in the past it makes it really difficult to have a focused sort of action agenda um, so it feels like what you're saying is having information and conversation so people at least are clear on what they're looking at or at least can be clear about what they care about. That's a big first step. Definitely. Definitely. It's a huge first step. I mean, a lot of people are looking at what they want to become without really taking stock of where they are now or vice versa. They're looking at where they are now, but they're not exactly sure what the overall vision is that's going to get them to where they want to be. And so I just see these as tools in order to be able to say, based on our mission, our institutional history, you know, the um, communities that surround us or in our organization, 
this is the trajectory that we want to go in. This is the direction that we want to head in. And you can start to build momentum and support within your institution. And you can start to articulate that mission out to communities so that you can say, you know, this is where we're trying to go. Will you partner with us in getting there? Similar to your earlier question about is it either or or both and, I think that it's going to take all of these actions happening simultaneously for us to really see progress. So it strikes me a great case in point is are you on the the team itself where you entered this question, you clarified what you thought it meant and how it looked, and then you come out the other side. And I'm curious, um, as a team, what were your sort of general conclusions or how how did it maybe change the way you saw or wanted to engage this question moving forward yourselves? Uh, well, as a team, we saw a lot of um, room for further investigation. So we really struggled with some of the wording with our assumptions and with our arguments for or against any specific vision because we wanted to make sure that we were all on the same page and we wanted to make sure that we were really being true to the vision itself. Um, And so one of the major things that came up for us as a team and that came up um, individually was just the centrality of race, for example. When we're talking about diversity, are we talking about racial diversity? When we're talking about um, reaching out to different communities and self-determination and, and different cultural norms, that can include all kinds of demographic um, and subcultural groups. But it, I think one of the things that for us, we have to kind of do some more research about and have more conversations around is really the question of uh, racial equity and how does it fit into the overall mission of cultural equity. Um, Another thing that um, we came up with as a group in terms of discussing was how does the vision for cultural equity fit into what we think um, is going to help and maintain the well-being of people, improving folks' lives. I mean, at Create Equity, we have what we're calling a healthy arts ecosystem, and we have a definition of what that might look like um, and some markers. Um, And one of the major themes in that healthy arts ecosystem is that the arts capacity to improve lives is central. Um, and it has to be concrete and it has to be meaningful. And so when we look at these different visions of cultural equity, we have to really grapple with the well-being of people and not just the well-being or sustainability of institutions. And so that's something that um, I think we definitely see more room for, for research, investigation and conversation around. Well, that brings up, I guess, your own work. So you're an adjunct professor in museum studies at a historically African-American university. I'm curious how this had already been infusing what you teach or how you teach or whether you are teaching in a different way now that you have this research behind you. Um, Well, you know, it's kind of an interesting place that I find myself um, in terms of teaching in museum studies at an HBCU. Because on the one hand, I'm very excited to be training up professionals in the field um, who have something unique to offer, who have life experiences. A lot of my students are actually older than I am. They're working professionals who are 
considering a career pivot or who always had a love for art or for museums but weren't sure exactly where to go with that love and so find themselves taking classes for a master's in museum studies. And on the one hand, I'm very excited that they see this as something worthy and valuable of their time and study. But on the other hand, sometimes I feel a little less than optimistic about their chances once they've left my program in terms of getting hired and in terms of being able to really have a seat at the table um, looking at how they can really transform or even just plug into the landscape that already exists when it comes to art and cultural institutions. So it's a balancing act, but I really, I, I appreciate the opportunity to bring um, these issues to my students and to, and to learn from them, from their experiences working as teachers or working um, in public health or in all of these different fields where they really are focused on the individual, they're really focused on um, the well-being of individuals and communities. Well, thanks, Fari. I've been talking to Fari Nzinga, who's a member of the Create Equity editorial team, also an adjunct professor in museum studies at Southern University at New Orleans. Uh, you can read the full article online at createquity.com. It's called Making Sense of Cultural Equity. There's also a bunch of supporting documentation and connection to research that, that informed the report. Thanks very much, Fari, for taking a moment. Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Create Equity podcast. I've been speaking with Fari Nzinga from the Create Equity editorial team. You can read more about what we discussed on the Create Equity website at createquity.com. In the next episode in the series, I'll be speaking about cultural equity with my faculty colleague at American University, Denise Saunders-Thompson, who also leads the International Association of Blacks in Dance.